Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Myers Detox Podcast. I'm Dr. Wendy Myers, and today we have one of my favorite guests, Dr. Stephanie Seneff, who is a, a major researcher and advocate against glyphosate. So glyphosate is an herbicide that is so pervasive in our environment in the United States, in Canada, um, less or so in Mexico. Mexico has a ban on glyphosate, which thankfully a lot of our food in the United States comes from Mexico. Um, and I think uh, Russia, I believe they ban it also. And uh, Europe, uh, many places don't allow its use as well, um, which is why the food's a lot healthier there. And uh, and it's also uh, Dr. Stephanie Seneff in this podcast really very clearly outlines the mechanisms by which glyphosate is promoting obesity, uh, causing you to be overweight, to have high blood sugar, diabetes, uh, Crohn's disease, uh, cancers, uh, digestive issues, which lead to food sensitivities and allergies, autoimmune, autism. Um, and there's very clear correlations between the increase in glyphosate use and the the almost exact direct correlation between the rises and many of the diseases that I just mentioned, including uh, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and dementia as well. I and mean, it's just uh, kidney disease. I mean, just the list goes on and on and on and on. And, mo and scarily, glyphosate also disrupts many of the mechanisms in our body, which help us detox other toxins, other fat-soluble toxins. And because it disrupts these toxins, is and is the reason that our body is forced to store them in fat. And so this is why people gain weight or they can't, they have resistant weight loss. They can't lose that last, you know, you know, 50 or the last 20 or 10 or 15 pounds or what have you. And it just, the body is holding onto it because it, it can't get rid of the, get rid of this stuff. So really a lot of uh, incredible information. This is a must listen podcast. Uh, so, uh, and I know a lot of you guys listening to this show are concerned about your toxic load. You're concerned about the, the heavy metals and chemicals that you may have in your body. And I created a quiz that you can take at heavymetalsquiz.com. And after you take that, you get a free video series that answers a lot of your frequently asked questions about uh, how to detox, about how to get rid of this garbage in your body that's throwing a wrench in your metabolism and so many other, and causing so many other health, uh, health issues. The research is clear. Uh, so go check that out at heavymetalsquiz.com. Our guest today is Dr. Stephanie Seneff. She's a senior research scientist at MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And she has a BS degree from MIT in biology and an MS and EE and PhD from MIT in electrical engineering and computer science. Her recent interests have focused on the role of toxic chemicals and micronutrient deficiencies in health and disease, with a special emphasis on the pervasive herbicide glyphosate and the mineral sulfur. Since 2008, she has authored over three dozen peer-reviewed journal papers on these topics, and she's the author of a book on glyphosate called Toxic Legacy, How the Weed Killer Glyphosate is Destroying Our Health and the Environment, uh, which was released by Chelsea Green in 2008. 21. And uh, you can learn more about Stephanie Seneff and her work at stephanieseneff.net. Dr. Seneff, thanks so much for joining the show. Delighted to be here as always. Thank you. 
Yeah. So my, actually my video, my last podcast with you on YouTube is one of the, the most watched videos that I have because people are very, very concerned about glyphosate and you've been researching this for a long, long time. Why don't you just, you know, for anyone who doesn't know about it, what is glyphosate exactly and where are we being exposed to it? Yeah. Glyphosate is the active ingredient in the pervasive herbicide Roundup, which most people most people know what Roundup is, and many people have used it to control dandelions in their yard or weeds in their walkways. Very convenient. Uh, supposedly, uh, a wonderful herbicide kills all uh, all plants except those that have been GMO engineered to be resistant to glyphosate. Other than those, every plant gets killed by it. So pretty impressive herbicide, because most herbicides are specific to certain types of plants. Um, and then at the same time, it's completely safe to humans, you know, like aspirin. I mean, they're really pointing, painting this picture that it's safe. And that is where the lie is, because it's not safe. And in my research, I've become extremely alarmed by, I think, huge numbers of conditions that are going up dramatically over time, like obesity and diabetes and aut autism and Alzheimer's that are um, going up in step with the rise in glyphosate usage. It's pervasive herbicide. It's all over the food supply. It's in the air. It's in the water. You can't avoid it if you live in the United States. And it is, it turns out that it's extremely toxic to humans in a unique, insidious, cumulative way that um, is hard to catch. I think they've been able to deceive the legislators and the public into thinking that it's safe because of this kind of, I think it's a slow kill and it doesn't immediately make you have an upset stomach or something. So you don't realize you're being poisoned. Yeah, it's interesting. When I first met my brother, who was given up for adoption, uh, you know, a long time ago, um, he, he, ironically, of all people, he would when he first called me, the first phone call I had with him, he's a cotton farmer, and he was mixing glyphosate. Wow, mixing wow. chemicals to Ouch. spray. Just spray out his. So luckily, I've uh, you know taught him about that and everything. But yeah, I was just really surprised. But um, you know, so tell us, I mean, it, the glyphosate is just everywhere. I mean, we're getting it in our food, like all of the, uh, all of the foods that are in uh, processed foods have glyphosate on them. I mean, can you talk about where it is in our food and it, it's sprayed on our children's parks, the, the schools, the neighbors are spraying it, the gardeners. I mean, it's just, I think people don't realize how much exposure they're actually getting. Right. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, people, And that's the thing that really singles it out against other chemicals, because I, I, I was interested in autism and I was looking at environmental chemical exposures that might be linked to autism. And I went through a big list, but they needed to be going up dramatically over time because autism rates are going up and that eliminated a lot of them. And, and a lot of the herbicides that are considered to be more toxic than glyphosate, their usage has went down as glyphosate went up, because once they had these GMO crops, glyphosate became the herbicide of choice. And so it's used far more than any of the other herbicides, some of which are, most of which are considered to be more, more toxic than glyphosate, probably all of which actually, all the chemical herbicides are considered to be more toxic than glyphosate. And therefore glyphosate's the herbicide of choice because it's safe and it's just, it's not safe. And so that's a really, really dangerous combination. And that's why it's so pervasive in our food supply. And I think it's the, uh, probably the most, uh, the primary cause, I would go out on a limb and say the primary cause of the celiac disease epidemic and gluten intolerance that we're seeing, casein intolerance, you know, these kind of protein sensitivities that we're seeing in lots and lots of people. So many people have food allergies to so many foods that you can't really host a dinner without sort of, you know, you've got all these restrictions and it's very hard to come up with recipes that can work for everybody when you've got multiple people with different kinds of food allergies. I think glyphosate's a major driver to that epidemic that we're seeing in food allergies. 
Um, so it's in, um, you know, it's in surprising places because a lot of people think if I buy non-GMO, I'll be safe. And that's not true at all. Some of the highest levels of glyphosate are found in non-GMO foods, uh, particularly, for example, wheat. And that's why I think the wheat is linked to the um, celiac problem. Wheat is the, you know, gluten intolerance, that's wheat. And wheat is commonly sprayed with glyphosate shortly before the harvest uh, in order to dry out the crop. So it's intentionally trying to kill the plant, but it grabs the seeds before it dies. And the, and the plant actually goes to seed and when it gets hit with this toxin, it goes to seed and increases the yield, but it pushes the toxin right into the seeds. And so you get very high levels of glyphosate in wheat-based products. And, um, and then oats is similar. Oats, is also, oats are also sprayed right before harvest. So oatmeal cookies, uh, the uh, oat cereals, Cheerios, um, you know, Oreo cookies, uh, goldfish crackers. These are some of the foods that have been found to have high levels of glyphosate in them. Very popular foods with the kids, which is very disturbing to me. And, uh, you know, when people get gluten intolerance and, and casein intolerance, they start to look at other foods and they go to oat, oats or don't have gluten. And, um, and then you get um, beans, you know, garbanzo beans and chickpeas, legumes. Those have had some of the highest levels. Canada did a big um, study where they tested over 8,000 food samples, both imported and, uh, and, and, and Canadian uh, for glyphosate levels and found it in lots and lots of foods, consistently found significantly higher levels in foods from U.S. And, and Canada compared to Europe, any kind of European imports, and also compared to Mexico. I was quite surprised and pleased to see that Mexico had significantly lower levels on, uh, on you know, at Mexican imports compared to uh, foods grown in United States and Canada. So those two countries are really loaded with glyphosate. And, and it, it's reflected in our health. You know, we have such a huge obesity epidemic and diabetes and autism and Alzheimer's, all those diseases that are going up dramatically are very well represented in America. You know, huge numbers of people are suffering from these conditions that I think are driven by this uh, chronic glyphosate exposure. Yeah. And that's why I just really commend the work that you're doing to get the word out about this and being such a huge voice uh, for this. And, you know, you were uh, interviewed in my upcoming heavy docuseries where we're talking about how all these, these toxins uh, promote obesity and, and diabetes and other health issues. And people just, they just don't know. They have no idea uh, right. what they're, what they're doing to themselves and the predatory practices of big food. And, and it's crazy. There's a, the battleground in Mexico where I am right now that, uh, you know, the company that makes glyphosate is trying really hard to get their products uh, used more widely uh, here. I know. Mexico has a great story that I've been following. And I just read an article about a beekeeper, a, a small woman in Mexico beekeeper who, who really fought hard um, about glyphosate and the bees because the bees were being killed by the, I'm quite certain that our epidemic that we're seeing this bee colony collapse sy uh, syndrome and this panic that the bees are going to disappear and won't be able to get the fruit. You know, they, they play an important role in fertilizing certain crops. But that's a huge problem that we're facing. And, and I, I have all, for a long time, I have felt glyphosate is a major contributor. They point to the insecticides, which obviously are bad for the bees. Um, but I think glyphosate is a, was an overlooked factor in, in the bee colony collapse. And, and um, this woman saw that with her. She, she, she was a bee, a honey. Um, she, she made honey from the bees. And she, um, and she found that when the glyphosate was being used in their bodies, her bees were hurting. And so she became very vocal against glyphosate. And that's probably part of the whole momentum behind uh, Mexico deciding to ban uh, glyphosate, period, in Mexico. I was so thrilled when I first heard that. And now I've been seeing articles that talk about the United States working hard to try to get Mexico to 
to uh, cancel that that idea. You know, U.S. is very unhappy that Mexico is banning glyphosate. I, of course, am thrilled because I think if our next door neighbor bans glyphosate, we can't continue to just pretend that it's fine. I hope. I mean, I don't know what it's going to take to reverse our government. They don't care. They don't. They don't think it's uh, unharmful. They don't measure it in the food supply. I mean, they're just completely um, reckless about glyphosate. Our our government. Yeah, and it's amazing. So when I was, you know, growing up, I would notice. I eventually it dawned on me that when I would eat foods that contain wheat, my stomach would hurt really bad. I, I have inflammation, obviously. I love eating goldfish and you know <laughs> foods like that. Um, but when I would go to Europe. I would just eat weed all day long and uh, eat the croissants and pizza and pasta and whatnot and no stomach ache at all. And I always yes. thought, why is that? It's not the wheat it, yes. for a lot of people. It's the the pesticides, it's the, the, the herbicides like glyphosate in the wheat that are causing so many problems for people here in the U.S., Right. In fact, there was a study that was done where they compared uh, the modern wheat used, you know, with the glyphosate chemicals um, against um, organic heirloom wheat. Um, and they, they had a controlled study where they had these people who had, um, I think they had inflammatory bowel disease, which is another one that's going up exactly in step. Uh, it's different from gluten intolerance and celiac disease, but it's also very uncomfortable. And uh, these people, they would gave them a period of time when they ate the, the, the organic heirloom wheat, and then another period when they ate the regular, uh, you know, U.S. wheat, and they showed that their inflammatory bowel condition became much, much better when they were eating the, um, the heirloom wheat, but they pointed out the change in strain, you know, the whole, the, 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 the um, evolution of the wheat, how we've manipulated it to make something, the gene genome is different, and they considered that to be the reason, or ignoring the fact that this other wheat was organic, which it was really the big difference was the organic. And they didn't pick up on that in the article, which I found ridiculous. You know, I get frustrated when people don't see that connection. Yeah. And let's talk about some of the, the health issues that are caused by glyphosate. So let's talk about the gut first, because you've made a lot of really, you know, revolutionary discoveries about what exactly is going on in the gut when you eat glyphosate. And, and let's discuss that. Right. In fact, I want to show you my book, Toxic Legacy, because there's, I worked really, really hard on that gut chapter. That might have been the hardest chapter that I wrote. I had to read so many papers and the papers are, your eyes glaze over. I mean, there's lots and lots of papers about the gut and they have these pretty pictures with all these colors and all these different you know, microbes. It's so complicated. It's not an easy thing to figure out, but glyphosate is definitely disrupting the gut microbiome. And that is really central to many diseases. They've linked you know, gut dysbiosis to lots of surprising places like rheumatoid arthritis and, um, and of course, autism and Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease. These diseases trace back to gut dysbiosis. Many of them do and autoimmune diseases. And, um, and the, it's very interesting. I finally really felt like I worked out a story that made sense to me that was consistent with all the data I was seeing. And it's quite interesting because glyphosate uh, severely damages critical microbes that normally um, inhabit the infant gut. When the infant's born, it has predominantly bifidobacteria and lactobacillus. They really take hold. Lactobacillus, of course, digests milk. It's very important to help digest the milk with, the, with enzymes that the lactobacillus produce for the host. So our, our own human cells are actually quite deficient in their capabilities. And the lactobacillus provide many enzymes that help to digest both milk and wheat. So both the gluten intolerance and the casein intolerance, I think, can be traced to insufficient supply of lactobacillus and even disruption of the enzymes that lactobacillus uses to digest those, those proteins. And so um, 
So that's one thing is the loss of lactobacillus. And then you get um, other pathogens uh, overgrow because they're less resistant. They're more resistant to glyphosate. So they get a, a head, you know, they get an edge um, and they become too, too many of them. And then, um, and then they, and that ends up causing inflammation. You know, the immune cells come in to try to control these pathogens and you get the inflammatory gut and all these other problems. And then the interesting thing that I discovered was a pH problem in the gut. And that was really fascinating because I was looking at papers that were showing that back in the day, like 1920, um, the infant gut was predominantly lactobacillus and, and bifidobacteria, and, it, and the pH of the gut was higher. So it was happened is that the pH has gone, I'm sorry, it was lower. pH has gone up in the, um, in the lower gut, in the large intestine. The acidity has is disappearing. It's becoming too basic. You know, that's the pH is this uh, measure of acid versus base, and um, and so and, and the environment really matters as far as which microbes will thrive under those conditions. It's very critical. The pH is very critical to to define which which microbes thrive. And when the pH in the in the colon is too high, the the bacteria that make the short chain fatty acids are broken. They don't work well. And so you have a deficiency in the short chain fatty acids, and in particular, butyrate is a super important short chain fatty acid that feeds the colonocytes lining the colon. So those, those human cells are depending critically on a food resource that's this butyrate that's normally produced by these acid loving bacteria. But they're kind of sick because the pH is too high and there aren't many of them. There's not enough butyrate. And then the colon, those colonocytes are starving. I mean, they basically have to eat something else that's not as good for them. And so they, they get sick. And that's how you can get inflammatory gut, for example, an injury, actually leaky gut. You, know, you get leaky gut barrier, all this problem of um, things leaking out of the gut that are supposed to stay there. That becomes very, very serious. So it's a cascade downward that leads to lots of problems. And then also you're not able to digest the proteins, as I mentioned, because you're missing those critical enzymes that are produced by the microbes. And what happens is you have these peptide sequences that are still around. You're supposed to break them down into individual amino acids. And then those can be absorbed through the midgut. During in the midgut, those get absorbed, and you can use them to make your own proteins. But if you don't break those proteins down, first of all, you don't you can't use those amino acids; they're wasted. And those peptide sequences end up in the in the colon where they're not supposed to be. And now you've got microbes growing that can break down the peptides and can and convert them all the way to, you know, nitrogen. Basically, they produce ammonia, and ammonia has a very high pH. So I think part of how that pH problem is happening is because the proteins aren't being properly broken down. That gives you amino acid deficiencies, even if you're eating those amino acids, you're getting deficiencies, which is critical, of course, for just making proteins, which, is, which are the workhorses of the body. So you are, have these peptides in the, in the lower gut that turn into ammonia, and then the ammonia causes pH to go up, and then you can't make these fatty acids. I mean, it's just a cascade of troubles all over the place. And can you talk about the the contribution to autoimmunity? Because you're you have to have gut dysbiosis and leaky gut and this kind of this this overwhelming reaction of your immune system to all these proteins that aren't digested properly that are floating on your bloodstream. And can you talk about that relationship? That's right. In fact, that's the same thing. So you've got these peptide sequences, you know, sequences of amino acids um, that are not human. They're, they're foreign. And then they go through, they, they, they cross that gut barrier because it's leaky. Glyphosate causes a leaky gut. That's been shown in peer-reviewed papers. 
Um, and so the combination of the leaky gut and the undigested proteins ends up with these peptides getting out into the circulation. And the immune cells hate these foreign proteins. That's what causes them to produce antibodies. They're trying to get them to remove. They recognize this is not human because they've been trained to know self versus other. And when they see a peptide sequence that they don't recognize as a human thing, they get worried and they want to remove it. They produce the antibodies. And the problem is that those antibodies can end up attacking your own tissues through a process called molecular mimicry. It's very quite fascinating that the, um, when the sequence is, is similar to, but not identical to a sequence in a human protein, the antibody can get confused and bind to the human protein instead. And then that causes all these different autoimmune diseases that have become so prevalent uh, in recent times. I mean, uh, autoimmunity is the subset that's the fastest growing um, in the United States. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. it's crazy. And um, can you talk a little bit about uh, autism? So this is something that's really concerning. My daughter was diagnosed with autism at, oh, at, wow. at, at one point. And I mean, I mean, I think it's kind of a, it's a diagnosis a lot of kids are getting, you know, but my daughter was able to kind of come out of it and, uh, you know, with detoxification, early intervention. Um, there's a lot of children that are, you know, dramatically um, affected by, by glyphosate and, um, you know, in utero and as they're growing as young children and developing, um, talk, can you talk about that mechanism where you believe that glyphosate's contributing to the autism epidemic? Yes. And of course that was a, a long story in my personal experience, because I was the reason why I started studying, uh, toxic chemicals was autism. I was, I was very concerned back in 2007, 2008, uh, seeing that the autism rates were going up every year. And the message was, oh, we're just diagnosing it more. Don't worry about it. And of course, also autism is a genetic disease. So we're looking at all these gene sequences and looking for people who have mutations and this and that. And is that correlated to looking for the actual gene uh, errors that might be responsible for autism? They were spending very little money uh, looking at environmental factors. And I felt like it's got to be something environmental because it's going up so fast. And that's when I started looking for what things are going up very fast. And it took me quite a while to find glyphosate. I was looking for five years. Uh, and I, and I, did, I ruled out Roundup because I thought it's safe, right? Everyone thinks it's safe. You don't worry about that one. But then I happened to be at a, at a conference where Professor Don Huber gave a two-hour presentation on glyphosate. And this was in 2012. And I didn't know what glyphosate was when I walked in the room, but I figured it was probably something I should know about. And uh, I was just, I had an epiphany in those two hours. I was like, this is it. I really became very confident that I had found my answer just because he was talking about the kind of damage glyphosate does. Um, and I knew a lot about autism at that point because I'd been reading all about the issues that the autistic kids have. And I was looking for something in the food because I was seeing all the gut problems they were having. And it fits so perfectly that I just thought this is it. you know. And I went back and found out that glyphosate was going up exactly in step with the rise in autism, 0.99 correlation coefficient. I mean, unbelievably well-matched. Um, and then of course I hooked up with Anthony Samsel and we wrote several papers together, diving into the mechanisms by which glyphosate could be causing autism. And I believe I have a pretty clear story at this point in my mind. And a central part of it um, is surprising. People wouldn't realize this. And I think we've talked about this before. I'm sure we have. It's the sulfate problem, right? You and I have talked about the sulfate problem. And that was something that I recognized as a problem with the autistic kids because I had read the papers by um, a woman, Rosemary Waring, uh, a very, uh, she was a doctor who treated autistic kids back in the 1990s. And she was looking at their urine to look at different what, what different metabolites might be messed up in their urine compared to the normal controls. She was a really good scientist and a very good detective. And she, she found 
that the autistic kids had shockingly high levels of sulfite and thiosulfate in their urine, way, way out of line compared to the normal kids, you know, hugely more, like a hundred times as much type of thing. And, um, and so she identified, and she saw they had low sulfate in their blood. So she suspected, she said, I think these kids have a, a defect in the ability to make sulfate. That was her conclusion. And that's how you get these other metabolites that have sulfur in them, but they're not sulfate because they can't be converted to sulfate. Sulfide and thiosulfate can both be converted to sulfate if those enzymes are working. And so, and so she even identified a potential uh, defect in sulfotransferases as well, which are enzymes that attach sulfate to molecules. And sulfotransferases are super, super important in biology. People don't know anything about them. And they probably don't even really realize that so many important at biologically active molecules are sulfated in transit. And that includes cholesterol and all of its derivatives, vitamin D, the sex hormones, um, thyroid hormone, uh, the, the amino acids, tryptophan, tyrosine, phenylalanine, which are products of the shikimate pathway that glyphosate disrupts. So those are deficient. And then their sulfation is also deficient. And so it makes it hard for them to be transported. So they become systemically deficient and they, and, uh, they produce many of the uh, neurotransmitters like dopamines, all of them actually, dopamine, serotonin, melatonin, epinephrine, which is adrenaline. All of those come out of that shikimate pathway via these uh, amino acids, tryptophan, tyrosine, and phenylalanine that are sulfated in transit. So all of that is getting messed up. Both the supply of those precursors and the ability to sulfate them are messed up by glyphosate. And so you get, for example, severe serotonin deficiency as well as then uh, melatonin deficiency, so you can't sleep. We have an epidemic in sleep disorder that's going up exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate. And I think that can directly be traced to the problems with serotonin and melatonin production, as well as the inability to sulfate them. So that's a double hit. Yeah, I mean, sleep is such a, so many people are having so many issues with sleeping. And I, I know I did for years and it's just, that in itself causes this whole other cascade of, of, of health effects as well, including obesity and diabetes and elevated blood sugar. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, dementia? Because um, there's this is also growing, um, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, other types of dementia. How is glyphosate contributing to that and just poor brain function? Right. And that's a, that's a complicated story. And I'm not sure I have the answers, but I certainly have some theories. And one is that glyphosate is a very good metal um, chelator. Glyphosate binds to minerals very, very tightly to certain minerals. And um, I found a paper, a theoretical paper that talked about how two glyphosate molecules can wrap around an aluminum uh, atom, aluminum ion, and erase its positive charge. Aluminum is a plus three charge. And so um, it, it, because it's positively charged, it's hard for it to get across the gut barrier. Glyphosate sets up a leaky barrier, which makes it easier, but glyphosate also wraps around the aluminum atom or ion to erase, to, to cancel out because the glyphosate is negatively charged and the two molecules of glyphosate will cancel out um, the plus three charge to make a neutral small molecule that can then easily cross the gut barrier and get out into circulation. Usually when you, and we eat foods that contain aluminum, and for example, soy, I think is one food that's contaminated, sometimes contaminated with aluminum. And so the aluminum normally stays in the gut because the barrier is, keeps it out. You know, this combination of the plus three charge and the non-leaky barrier. But once you've got those problems of glyphosate, it, it picks up the aluminum, carries it past the barrier, carries it in the blood and lands in the, in the brain, and then delivers the aluminum, aluminum to the brain. 
And of course, aluminum is a uh, is very clearly uh, a factor in autism in, in, in Alzheimer's. They've shown, in fact, they found um, people who were on dialysis uh, treatment after a while, many of the dialysis patients would develop dementia. And they finally traced it to aluminum naturally found in the water in the dialysis. So they learned to make that water very pure to get the aluminum out in order to prevent that from happening. And so, um, so there's a clear connection between aluminum. Also, they see aluminum in the plaque. You know, the plaque that accumulates with Alzheimer's has aluminum in it. So I think one thing is that glyphosate is delivering the aluminum very effectively to the brain. And you get into the acidic terminal watershed of the, of the blood at the place where it interfaces with other fluids like the saliva, or the tears, you know, uh, in, the, um, in the head. Uh, those places where the blood interfaces with these other, and it gets and excretes the water through the saliva, uh, they tend to have a, a low pH compared to the rest of the blood. So this low pH uh, allows glyphosate to let go of the aluminum atom. And then the aluminum and the glyphosate both become very toxic when they're independent of each other. And both of them are causing damage. I also am fascinated by the possibility that glyphosate is actually getting into proteins. This is a critical part of my story in my book, that glyphosate is substituting for glycine during protein synthesis. I believe this is true. And it's a way to explain how one chemical could cause so many different diseases, because by messing up so many proteins, many, many proteins are getting messed up by glyphosate by virtue of it getting into the protein by mistake in place of the, pro of the coding amino acid glycine. And, um, and that causes these proteins to misbehave. They can't, they can't work properly. And it's extremely fascinating with regard to Alzheimer's because there's a, the, the amyloid beta protein that's famously associated with Alzheimer's disease and that misfolds and gets this plaque. That protein has a, um, a characteristic sequence, GXXX, it's G, two glycines with three wild cards between them, twice. It's a GXXX, GXXXG sequence that's in amyloid beta that's been critical. They've identified that sequence as being the part of the protein that is um, causing this most folding problem. They've, they've identified that's the part. And when you replace any of those glycines with glyphosate, you will cause it to not be able to fold properly into an alpha helix structure and get into the membrane. It'll break it from being able to do that. And instead it will form these beta sheets. They're called beta sheets and precipitate out in the plaque. So I think the glyphosate is both providing the aluminum that's messing up the, um, the proteins and uh, also misfolding, causing the amyloid beta to misfold. So that's two different ways that I think it's causing Alzheimer's disease. And is it enough to just supplement with glycine? Because that's a solution that, that you know some people are, are coming forth with, like just take glycine and it's going to push out the glyphosate from the proteins. But it seems a little bit hard to believe it's that easy. No, I don't think it's enough, but I do think it may be therapeutic. And unfortunately, it's hard to find organic glycine. If you're buying glycine, you're probably buying glyphosate as well, because I think anything that's glycine is going to have, if it's naturally sourced glycine, it's probably going to have glyphosate in it. So I need to worry about that as far as the glycine supplement goes. Um, I would definitely recommend trying to eat, for example, bone broth is a good source of glycine. And so if you can get organic bone broth, um, that would be a really good thing to take to take a lot of. I think it's a very healthy food anyway because it has a lot of mineral nutrients. Um, but that can be a good source of glycine. Of course, collagen is also a good source and you can get organic collagen. Collagen is a popular supplement these days. And uh, collagen has huge amounts of glycine in it. It's, it's an, uh, it has these long, long sequences of GXY, 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 where every third amino acid is a glycine, has a tremendous opportunity for glyphosate to mess it up. 
And if glyphosate substitutes for one of those glycines, it can cause the pro protein to misfold. Again, that protein forms this beautiful triple helix structure that's critical for the way that it functions. The structural protein is the most common by far protein in our body. I think it's like a quarter of our proteins are, um, are collagen and it forms the glue. I mean, it's all over the, um, it's what holds your joints together. You know, it's just, it's in your brain, it's everywhere. And there's lots of it and it's loaded with glycine. So it has a very strong uh, vulnerability to glyphosate toxicity. And uh, when it misfolds, I think it's causing a lot of these issues with bo bone pain, joint pain, you know, all of the problems people are having with back pain and hip replacement therapy and, you know, all these issues um, in the neck. I mean, many people are just suffering from chronic pain due to some kind of joint issue and getting shoulder surgery. I mean, it's just incredible how that's also gone up. All of those uh, operations to re repair the hip and the shoulder and the knee are going up dramatically over time. And I think, again, it's just more and more, as you live longer, you accumulate more and more because it's very hard to get it out of the collagen once it's there. Yeah. And are there any other proteins that are really dramatically affected by the, the glyphosate replacing the glycine? Well, that's the thing with the sulfur that I found really, really fascinating because when I looked at the enzymes involved in sulfate synthesis and even in sulfate um, incorporation of sulfate, there's gut, gut microbes that uh, take inorganic sulfur in the form of sulfate or sulfide, and then they convert it into organic sulfur in the form of methionine. And there was a study that showed that the enzymes that E. coli used to make methionine from inorganic sulfur are busted by glyphosate. So, you, so there's lots of problems with that because methionine, of course, is a very critical amino acid. That's another one that people can take as a sup supplement. Esadenazole methionine. They also they also take N-acetylcysteine. Cysteine and methionine are cousins. They, they, they can be converted to each other back and forth. And cysteine is, of course, also very important. It's one of the three amino acids in glutathione. And glutathione is a very important liver antioxidant as well as everywhere else in the body. Glutathione deficiency is another thing that's linked to autism. Autistic kids have been shown to have low glutathione, which makes sense because that it needs uh, it needs the methionine to make the cysteine to make the glutathione, and the methionine is not being properly made. Not enough of it is being made in the gut by the gut microbes because their enzymes are getting disturbed by glyphosate. And I actually traced those enzymes. Sulfite oxidase is another one, and also the sulfotransferases that I mentioned earlier. Both of those enzymes have what I call a glyphosate susceptibility motif, meaning a, a place in the enzyme where it has a highly conserved glycine residue and it binds phosphate. And that's the critical pattern that I see that is very worrisome. When an enzyme has that profile, it has a very strong um, likelihood for glyphosate to swap in for the glycine, stick its methylphosphonate piece into the place where the phosphate of the substrate is supposed to go blocking the substrate from binding and messing up the enzyme's ability to do its job. And I think that's what's happening in those sulfur systems that's messing them up. And then you have all these problems with the sulfate, so insufficient sulfate, insufficient sulfur containing amino acids, sulfite toxicity, which is another issue. A lot of people are sensitive to sulfites uh, because they can't be converted to sulfate or converted to um, methionine. Both ways, they're going to be in trouble. And the sulfite is extremely reactive. So, um, Many people have sulfur sensitivities. I discovered that after I was talking about, oh, you got to get sulfur with autism. It's going to help the autism. And they would say, well, my autistic son is sensitive to sulfur. I can't feed him sulfur-containing foods. And enough people told me that. I finally figured out there's got to be some problem there. And it turns out that's what's going to happen. If you don't have the enzymes that are working properly, the sulfite's going to be toxic. 
and you won't be able to eat sulfur-containing foods. And then, of course, you'll have a systemic sulfur deficiency problem. And that's what I think is happening to these autistic kids. It was remarkable with autism what I discovered with respect to heparin sulfate in the brain ventricles. This is very specific, but both in humans and in mice, uh, many studies have shown uh, deficiencies in heparin sulfate in the brain ventricles. And they've seen it in uh, humans post-mortem. They've had autistic kids who die they look at their brain afterwards and they find uh, grossly uh, insufficient heparin sulfate in the brain. And heparin sulfate turns out to be essential for brain development. So I think these kids in utero, in some cases, the mother's eating glyphosate, messing up those enzymes. The fetus is unable to make enough heparin sulfate in the brain. And the heparin sulfate needs to be there to orchestrate the brain development, the actual maturation of the neurons from precursor cells. All of that critically depends on a sufficient amount of heparin sulfate, which is not there in these autistic kids and in autistic mice. They have these mice that they've engineered to, um, they've actually got mice that breed true to autism. They've done that through genetic engineering. And those mice they found have insufficient heparin sulfate in their brain. And there was another experiment where they actually exposed mice at birth to a poison in the brain, in the brain ventricles that disrupted heparin sulfate production. And that was their only defect. They were normal mice, except for this problem that was introduced at birth. And they also showed characteristic features of mouse autism just with that one uh, change. So I think it's really, really important. Uh, the heparin sulfate is, is, is deficient. Cholesterol sulfate is deficient. Serotonin sulfate and melatonin sulfate are deficient. All of those uh, critical, critical uh, bioactive molecules uh, become insufficient because of the inability to add the sulfate to the molecule. Really, yeah. really, really interesting. I talk a lot about that in my book. Yeah. And then on all of these things you just talked about is going to impede people's ability to detox. So yes. on top of that, they're going to start, right. they're going to start building up other toxins in their body, the hundred thousand toxins and dozens of heavy metals in, and they, they will build up to a point where those will start causing other health issues. Absolutely. And in fact, that's at one of the first things I figured out was the liver enzymes. And I talked in my first paper with Anthony Samsa, which was my first paper on glyphosate. I talked about cytochrome P450 enzymes in the liver. And I, I recognized that they were being disrupted by glyphosate. They also have that glyphosate susceptibility motif uh, there. So, um, but it's been shown experimentally that glyphosate suppresses them. Those enzymes, they call them SIPE enzymes. That's a nickname. Super, super important in the liver. They, one thing they do is they make the bile acids. So then the bile acids become deficient and it can't digest fats. They also detoxify other fat-soluble toxic chemicals. Glyphosate is not fat-soluble, but many of the chemicals are. And they need to be uh, hydrolyzed by these cytochrome P450 enzymes in order to be solubilized so they can be converted into, into water-soluble. And then they can be released by the liver into the blood and delivered to the kidneys. And the kidneys can pee them out. So that whole mechanism is really important for detoxifying fat-soluble chemicals and, uh, and also the sulfation is the other step. So often these chemicals are first hydrolyzed by the cytochrome P450 enzymes and then sulfated by the sulfotransferase, both of which are busted by glyphosate. So these fat-soluble molecules become extremely toxic as a consequence of the uh, liver's defects in its ability to clear them as a consequence of the exposure to glyphosate. So it's really a pretty, pretty bad mess. Yeah. And then guess what happens? The body has to shuttle all this stuff into 
fat. They're fat soluble right. toxins. The body can't, doesn't have the tools to deal with them. And so we, we hang on to fat. We, we, uh, you know, produce more fat, gain more weight to store all these top toxic chemicals. The body can't be, deal with. So boom. I, yeah, I definitely obesity. agree with that. Yeah. I think that's a major driver to the obesity problem. And of course, without the bile acids, you can't digest the fat. So you're eating fats. You can't digest them. You need a place to store these toxins that you can't get rid of. So the easy thing to do is just to get fat. You know, it's the best way to deal with it. And in fact, I find it, I've really come lately, I've been fascinated by the fact that I know people who are um, often autistic kids who are very um, picky about foods and they actually, they just love to eat carbs and especially sugar. You know, they like to eat like uh, lots of sweets and carbs and they don't eat much else. Like they're really picky eaters. There's many things they don't like. And, um, and they're eating tons and tons of carbs. And of course that, you know, we've become very aware of the fact that carbs now make you fat. It used to be, you thought don't eat fat, right? Go on a very low fat diet to try to not gain weight. Um, but, the, but the fact that they, they sort of, they don't like proteins. They don't like fats. I think the problem is that both the proteins and the fats are compromised by the glyphosate because the glyphosate is not producing, it's cutting down the bile acid production and the bile acid is essential for, um, for, for, for metabolizing fats. And then glyphosate is disrupting protein uh, digestion, as I mentioned earlier, because these enzymes are not being produced by the gut microbes. So both the proteins and the fats are problematic. And therefore, you're going to be inclined to eat lots of carbs because that's the only food group that you can handle, you know, and it's very, very easy to digest. I mean, glucose is so simple. We've got that whole mechanism in place with glucose to turn it into ATP and make energy. You know, that, that's the whole citric acid cycle. The cells know how to do that, although that gets disrupted as well by glyphosate. And in fact, um, there's an enzyme called PEPCK that I talked about in my book, phosphoenolpyruvate carboxykinase, a very, very important enzyme in the liver and in the pancreas. And I suspect that's connected to the uh, insulin issues. But the PEPCK in the liver is essential for converting fats and proteins into glucose. And so the liver actually kicks in the PEPCK when the blood sugar drops too low. So of course, if blood sugar gets too low, you can go into a coma. And your body has an immediate reaction to say, no, no, make some sugar, make some sugar. And the liver will do that with the PEPCK. But the PEPCK is a real target for glyphosate. It has exactly the same setup as the enzyme that glyphosate famously disrupts in the gut. The, the uh, EPSP synthase is the liver in the shikimate pathway, is the enzyme in the shikimate pathway that glyphosate famously disrupts. Nobody denies that. They think that's the way it kills the plants. And it also, of course, kills a bacteria in the gut for the same reason because they have that enzyme. E EPSP synthase binds to a molecule called PEP, phosphoenolpyruvate, at a, at a place in the enzyme where it has a highly conserved glycine residue. And if you swap out that glycine for alanine, uh, a very small change for the protein, the glyphosate doesn't, doesn't hurt that molecule at all. It, it kills glyphosate's ability to disrupt that enzyme. And that's because glyphosate disrupts it by substituting for that glycine. Once that glycine is not there, glyphosate can't do anything. That's very clear to me. And that's, I talk about that in my book as well. That's really strong evidence for the idea that the way glyphosate is disrupting that enzyme is by substituting for that glycine. So the PEPCK has exactly the same thing, a highly conserved glycine, a place where it binds PEP, the same molecule. So it, to me, that seems like it has a really tremendously perfect glyphosate susceptibility motif modeled after the enzyme that glyphosate disrupts. And if PPCK is broken, you can't convert proteins and fats to sugar, which means that when the blood sugar gets low, you're in big trouble because you depend upon that enzyme to bring it back. The liver starts pouring sugar into the blood to bring it back up. 
It can't do that. So now you need to keep the sugar in the blood high all the time because your, your body's anticipating, oh my God, if it gets too low, I can't recover. I got to keep it high. Now you end up with this precursor to diabetes, which is just this elevated blood sugar that so many people have, this kind of pre-diabetes state with too much sugar in their blood. Their body needs to do that because it can't, uh, it can't allow the blood sugar to get too low because it can't recover quickly because that PEPCK is broken. That's what I think may be going on to cause both the excessive consumption of gar- carbohydrates where you're supplying a continual supply of sugar directly from your food into the blood to keep it high. And then also, of course, the, um, uh, the diabetes, uh, diabetes and the obesity because the fat's being stored. So all of those things make sense to me as far as why, and these diseases are all going up exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage. So the whole pattern, the whole story just makes a whole lot of sense, sense to me. Yeah. And so, I mean, you've just illustrated uh, all the mechanisms and all the different health issues that are rising directly in correlation with increasing glyphosate use. There's been 18.9 billion pounds used uh, around the world. And uh, with this direct correlation going up with these many different diseases, many, many, many. And so what is the solution here? So is there anything that we we can do to detox this stuff? I mean, you you know, eating organic is an obvious way to prevent glyphosate buildup. But I I think a lot of, even with organic food, you're still going to get some. I mean, you're you're still going to- You can't avoid it. Your pets are being exposed. I think that's why one one in one point six dogs get cancer. I know. Um, yeah, and we, we didn't, didn't we didn't even it. we didn't even talk about cancer. But cancer is another <laughs> one. Yes, and in fact, there's several cancers that are going up exact exactly in step, including thyroid cancer, pancreatic cancer. Now these are metabolic cancers. Um, I, breast cancer is a complicated story, but I think it's also connected to glyphosate. It, it went down because of um, hormone replacement therapy being cut back. So. So it's harder to see with breast cancer. The pattern doesn't work because it went down and then it went back up. But I think now it's, I, I did some tricks to try to remove that, um, that problem with the hormone replacement therapy. And then I could produce a version of, of the breast cancer curve that also matches glyphosate. If you sort of correct for the hormone replacement, which was causing breast cancer rates to go down. But at the, mean, at the same time, glyphosate was causing them to go up. So eventually it turned around and now it's going back up again. The breast cancer, I think it's causing that. Um, and uh, thyroid cancer, kidney disease and kidney cancer, liver disease and liver cancer. So it's really, really um, very serious problems. And of course, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is the one that's allowed all these lawsuits. There were those three lawsuits that were phenomenal for these people, won a very large um, settlement with a jury trial. And then it's been, they've been fighting it. The industry doesn't just pay the money and say, oh, okay, fine. You know, they fight and they're still struggling with um, going to higher courts and all of that, but they're getting them. Um, there's, there's, Monsanto's not succeeding in getting rid of those lawsuits so far. And there's thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of this point, at this point of people waiting for their turn in court uh, with the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma alone. If we can get you know, enough evidence that it's causing autism, I think we can get a lot of lawsuit, uh, lawsuits linking autism to glyphosate. And I think that'll really take them down. Also, I want to say that Monsanto, or Bayer has decided um, to stop selling uh, glyphosate-based Roundup to the American population. It's either this year or next year they're going to stop, um, and and but they're going to still sell it to the farmers. But because the um, the lawsuits are all are not farmers because the farmers have so many chemicals they're exposed to 
it can never work in court. They can always say, well, it was those other chemicals that caused your problem. Whereas these people who had the successful lawsuits, they were only using glyphosate. So it was much clearer. But they're going to stop selling it to the American public just because of all these lawsuits. So that's really a big victory. It's not a political victory. It's a, a sort of, you know, a victory as a consequence of lawsuits. So I'm really starting to appreciate lawyers and the role they can play in helping to get rid of this chemical. And I think with, with if um, Mexico succeeds in banning it, and if these lawsuits continue to heat up, I think um, eventually uh, they may, the Bayer may decide to finally just stop selling it because there's too much going on that could really threaten their bottom line. I'm hoping that may happen. And of course, with um, when, when whole countries ban it, that becomes very visible and, and makes other countries, other governments start to think about whether they should ban it too. So I think we've got a good movement going there. Uh, U.S. seems to be very slow to... Um, to react, which is unfortunate. We can see how sick our population is. To me, it's a no-brainer to think if I were the government, I would want to get rid of this chemical that's causing all these diseases. Our medical system is a mess. We spend much, much more on medical care than any other country. We have poor results. Our, 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 life, our life expectancy is quite a bit lower than many other um, industrialized countries. So we are doing extremely badly with our health. And um, we ought to figure out that the reason is because we're being exposed to too many toxic chemicals. I mean, I think that the big agro and big food, you know, they uh, they really pay a lot of money for to the governments. And my concern in Mexico is, you know, money talks. Um, so that I just have a, a big concern there about that ban getting overturned. I think I even I read know, some. but they're I, working really hard. The U.S. government is working really hard to try to get them to overturn it, which just infuriates me. You know, not only are they not banning it. They're trying to prevent other countries from banning it as well, which is just so crazy. So our government needs to straight, straighten up. I think we are in really bad uh, shape. And it's not going to be a, a happy future for us if we don't straighten up. And I think it's going to, and of course, glyphosate also affects future generations. I mean, there's some studies that are amazing that are showing up when you expose a, a pregnant rat to glyphosate at low doses that doesn't really seem to affect the rat at all. And even the, the offspring are fine. But then when they grow up and have their uh, babies and then the next generation, the pups, each generation gets worse. There's an actual memory of damage uh, to, this, to the second generation that happens in utero. It's quite fascinating. Those cells in the fetus that are the next generation cells, the germ cells in the fetus exposed to the glyphosate in utero, remember that exposure through, and through epigenetic markers. They remember it and it ends up showing up as as disease in future generations. And I think that's happening in humans now today. We've got glyphosate around long enough that we're getting to the second and third generation. It's gonna get only worse. Even with if we stop it today, we're gonna to have damage showing up in future generations from the preceding time. It just lasts really a long time that that memory of that exposure is really hard to get rid of. Yeah. So I mean, as far yeah. as uh, treating, um, you know, people are, are, are proposing um, Supplement, you know, people are proposing things that I think can help. Um, and in fact, fulvic acid and humic acid are something I hear bantered, bantered around a lot. There was a study, I always like to mention this study on cows some time ago, and the cows were sick, they were exposed to glyphosate, they showed glyphosate in their urine, um, and they fed them um, fulvic acid, humic acid, um, sauerkraut juice, and uh, bentonite clay. It's kind of interesting. I guess those were things that they were aware could help remove chemicals. So they're sort of thinking of that as obvious things to try. 
and they reported that the glyphosate levels in the urine, urine went down and the cows got better. So it was kind of a good uh, study that demonstrated this uh, beneficial effect in the cows. And those are all things humans can take. And sauerkraut juice is quite interesting because that's of course a, a fermented food. And so I really advocate that people eat a lot of fermented foods. We really like organic apple cider vinegar. We make our own salad dressing. We have a salad almost every night. And then the salad dressing contains the apple cider vinegar, which this uh, there's a, a microbe uh, in those in those fermented foods um, called Acetobacter. And uh, there are very few microbes that can fully metabolize glyphosate, but there are some species of Acetobacter that can. And I'm sort of hoping that uh, Acetobacter in the fermented foods might be able to actually break the glyphosate down, which is really the best that you want is to break it down, not just to pass it out through your feces or pass it out through your urine. You want to get rid of it. And so it would be really wonderful if that's true. I don't know if it's true. It hasn't been proven that the Acetobacter in the uh, vinegar can actually break down the glyphosate, but you could hope that that might be the case. And so that I, would, I certainly think it's a good idea to eat fermented foods in any case, because they are, they're very healthy foods. Um, and of course, getting plenty of sulfur containing foods is also important because if you have enough sulfur, if you have enough sulfate, uh, you can detox better, everything else. And, um, and of course, uh, the whole sulfate system is essential actually for being able to break down cellular debris in general. You need sulfate to break down cellular debris. And so a lot of times people's, um, so damaged molecules accumulate in the cells because the cells don't have a good cellular digestive system, you could say. And that can be a consequence of insufficient sulfate. So you really want to, I really like Epsom salt baths. That's something I do regularly. And, um, and I think that's what's uh, helped. I, I, I sleep very, very well. And a lot of people my age are having sleep dis, dis, you know, disorder, taking lots of supplements to try to figure out how to sleep better. I don't take anything except these Epsom salt baths, which I really um, promote as a way to get sulfate. Epsom salt is magnesium sulfate. Magnesium is often deficient as well. So you can get both magnesium and sulfate by just soaking in a, I like to do a really hot bath water with, um, throw in, I just throw in a handful of um, Epsom salts um, and hoping that that's going to help to keep your magnesium and sulfate levels high, bypassing the gut, which I think is really useful. Yeah, that's so key because I think a lot of people, they don't, they also get deeper sleep. I mean, I've had a lot of people show that when they test with their aura ring, their REM sleep and deep sleep, that they have mm. more deep sleep, uh, significantly more following doing an Epsom salt bath. Oh, that's really great. That's good to know because I, I feel like I sleep extremely well and I have a lot of deep sleep. I don't have one of those devices that finds out, but I suspect it would be. And, um, and I did, I take these regular Epsom salt baths. So I think that's, I think that's a really good thing to do. Is there anything else that you can suggest to people to help with glyphosate? So, or other toxins, do you recommend, you know, infrared sauna use as being helpful or coffee yes, enemas think, or anything like that? Yeah. Coffee enemas is something that a lot of people have uh, advocated. I have never tried that. Um, yeah. Sort of actively detoxing, you know, doing things to detox. I have not tried that myself. Um, I, I'm, I'm very much in favor of natural, as you probably know. Uh, the one thing we haven't said yet that I would like to say is sunlight, sunlight exposure without sunscreen, without sunglasses, even take off your sunglasses, get out in the sunlight. And of course, taking a walk uh, every day, it's very, very healthy. I think you need physical motion is going to help to keep your circulation going. And that's really important for so many things. So definitely getting exercise, no, not huge amounts of exercise, but just regular exercise. 
um, particularly outdoors and ideally walking the beach. That's one thing I love to do is to walk. Not everybody lives near the ocean, but um, get in the water, you know, along the edge, walk the beach. Um, you've got the sunlight, you've got the, the uh, ocean air, which is also very healthy. It even contains hydrogen sulfide gas, which I think can get converted to sulfate. So uh, with the sunlight. And so um, that's really, really healthy to walk the beach um, in the sunlight on a nice sunny day, really special treat. <laughs> Not yeah. everyone has that option, but that's. Yeah, this is detox 101. And sometimes you, it's just, you just have to do really basic things that are evolutionarily like where everybody was doing, you know, a million years ago. I know. And or, the barefoot you know, aspect as well, the barefoot, because I think uh, grounding, you know, it's funny because I was reading a book as, as Sinatra. It was uh, not Frank Sinatra, but uh, Stephen Sinatra, Sinatra. Right. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, he wrote a book on uh, on grounding, and um, and I, I remember I was at a conference in Las Vegas and um, up on in the top of a hotel that had a whole. Um, I mean, it was on EMFs, you know, EMFs and grounding, and and, uh, and I was in this hotel up uh, way up high. Oh, with a whole area below me that was all the uh, slot machines and stuff. There was probably huge amounts of EMFs, you know, in this hotel where I was reading this book about how bad EMFs are. I remember feeling like, oh my God, I must be, you know, over the top exposed right now while I'm reading this book that's telling me I shouldn't be. So it was kind of interesting, but yeah, it's good if you can uh, stay away from EMFs. I, I have a lot of friends who are concerned about that. Uh, it's not something I've dived into yet. Um, I've just got, I'm too busy with other topics at the moment, but it would be something I would grab if I had more time. Yeah. Sadly, Dr. Steven Snotra passed, but uh, he was just. Oh, uh, I didn't he, know that. Oh, that's he passed sad. this year or last oh, year. No. Yeah, oh, no. Sadly. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, but well, Dr. Sinav, uh, tell us a little bit about your book. So you've, you've touched on a lot of subjects today oh, that okay. you go into detail uh, with your book, Toxic Legacy. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so this is all about glyphosate. Um, and it's got, um, and it's focused on autism, but also many other conditions. I have chapters, like I have a chapter on the liver, chapter on the gut, ch chapter on neurological diseases, um, chapter on, I don't have a chapter on cancer. Um, that's a harder one to to tell the story, but, uh, but several different topics of uh, autoimmune disease. I have a chapter on autoimmune, and I have, uh, Two ch one chapter that focuses on convincing people that it's substituting for glycine, because I think that's crucial that glyphosate is substituting for glycine during protein synthesis. That's not something that, um, it's something that many chemists are denying. So that's where that there's controversy around that idea. Um, they, they, they seem to think that it couldn't happen, but I don't see a good reason why it couldn't. And I see tremendous evidence of it happening in the actual data that Monsanto, Monsanto gathered about glyphosate. It's the best way to explain what they observed. And I mentioned about the EPSP synthase and how it has that glycine. If you substitute the glycine, it's not sensitive to glyphosate at all. The easiest explanation is that glyphosate substituting for that glycine when it's no longer glyphosate. When it's no longer glycine, the code doesn't match if glyphosate can't substitute. That's a very straightforward explanation for that observation. Otherwise, it's very hard to explain. And if you accept that, and then you look at the particular proteins that have um, the appropriate glyphosate susceptibility motif, and you see that those proteins are, are in many cases, they've shown that those proteins are suppressed by glyphosate. The whole story just, and then of course you see those proteins being defective in association with all these diseases that are going up dramatically in step with glyphosate. When you piece all of that together, it's like a giant puzzle. And I love puzzles. And this one is really the, 
the mother of all puzzles. And I've just really um, enjoyed linking, uh, connecting the dots and making that story work for all the different diseases that are going up. For each disease, I would look at the proteins that are, um, are defective in association with that disease, like genetic defects. And then you could see that if, and in fact, for example, glycine substitutions in collagen cause uh, diseases that cause problems with the joints. And so you could think if you substitute glycine with glyphosate, this is a genetic mutation where glycine is substituted with something else like aspartate or something, then they can have a, a severe problem with just one mutation. So if you've got a glyphosate there, that protein's not going to work. You can see that from exactly what happens when glycine is substituted with another amino acid that has similar properties to glyphosate. So I did a lot of digging around looking for mutations associated with conditions that are associated with glyphosate in terms of going up exactly in step, a giant puzzle that I am trying to solve. And I feel like I've gotten really far in, in understanding exactly how glyphosate is causing all these diseases and I can explain it. And that makes me feel very satisfied in believing that glyphosate is in fact a huge, huge problem uh, in our society today because of this chronic exposure of the entire population to glyphosate. Well, Dr. Seneff, uh, we are glad that you like puzzles because this has <laughs> been a very difficult one uh, to figure out indeed. I mean, you, you, uh, you know, since the last time we talked about this, I mean, it must've been four or five years ago. I mean, you've learned so much more and written this book and have become such a voice uh, for this toxin that is, I mean, I'm just doing this heavy docu-series. I'm interviewing 80 experts on toxins. Every single one is mentioned in glyphosate is the number one uh, problem. The number yeah, one I'm most glad to see. pervasive toxic uh, chemical that is harming our health and promoting obesity and diabetes and so many things you talked about. So thank you so much for the work that you do. And everyone uh, go check out, go read Dr. Seneff's book, Toxic Legacy. Get it. Where can we get it? Uh, Amazon, of course, but also several other booksellers. My, my webpage, stephanieseneff.net slash book. Um, you can find, I have links to all various uh, booksellers that sell it. And of course, the uh, Chelsea Green is the publisher and you can buy it from them as well directly. Okay, fantastic. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining me today for the uh, Myers Detox Podcast. I'm Dr. Wendy Myers, uh, help you know interviewing experts around the world to help you upgrade your health and put together those missing pieces of the puzzle that you may not be able to figure out uh, with uh, you know with your doctor and with searching on Dr. Google. Uh, so thanks for tuning in. The Myers Detox Podcast is created and hosted by Wendy Myers. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Wendy Myers and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.